Thought Leadership from PwC. If you think about the two big trends that technology trends that have impacted FP&A, it's really the explosion of data. So kind of the big data explosion and then the evolution of cloud. Continuing our Finance 2025 series with a conversation focused on the high-performing FP&A function, this is PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn, and thanks so much for joining us today. According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, a seven-day weather forecast can accurately predict the weather about 80% of the time, which is honestly higher than I would have thought. And a five-day forecast can accurately predict the weather approximately 90% of the time. Go out past 10 days, though, that forecast is right only about half the time, as I'm sure all of you are aware from personal experience. Yep, that's right. It's basically the same as flipping a coin. As my guest today will discuss, the average FP&A organization does only slightly better than the 10-day weather forecast, coming in at a 60% P&L forecast accuracy. But as we'll find out, leading FP&A organizations can do much, much better than this by employing a variety of strategies Today's best-in-class FP&A organizations can realize the same accuracy as that five-day forecast, over 90%. So what are those strategies? That's exactly what Satyam Popat, partner in PwC's finance transformation practice, is here to discuss. How leading FP&A organizations use a nexus of technology and people to achieve results that are not just accurate, but also to do so in a way that actually helps drive company strategy. Satyan has an enormous library of knowledge from his years of advising CFOs, FP&A heads, and other finance leaders on how to transform their function from average or even good to leading and how to integrate the whole business in the planning process. Satyan has a lot to share, so let's get started. So Satyan, thank you so much for joining me today. Looking forward to our conversation. But before we got started, thought it'd be interesting just to share a little bit with our listeners about your background and specifically how that intersects with finance transformation. Sounds good, Heather. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm really excited to talk to you about a topic I'm very passionate about, which is FPNA. Uh, I've spent about 15 years or so uh, working with CFOs, helping them transform their FP&A functions from a people, process, and technology standpoint. Uh, I did start out in the industry. So, you know, I have a few years where I worked in the industry as an FP&A analyst and then uh, did both management as well as tech consulting. Uh, and as a part of doing, going through that journey of being in the industry and then management and tech, I do understand and appreciate the, both the business and tech challenges that typically face FP&A organizations. Uh, I've also had the opportunity to work across industries. So I've worked in aerospace and defense. Uh, I, my current focus is on high tech. Uh, I've worked with consumer markets and all of the other different industries as well. And I work with both pre-IPO as well as Fortune 100 companies. So really seen the uh, the evolution and growth uh, of, of the FP&A organizations. So I'm curious, uh, we'll get into FP&A, but I'm just curious, you said you're working with a lot of high-tech companies and then even pre-IPO companies. Mm -hmm. And I think often a lot of our audience will be coming from the accounting side, controllers, et cetera. And I think, you know, for some accountants, FP&A is sort of 
to the side. It's sort of over there. It's something you do later, maybe when you are a Fortune 100 company. And so how do you see, like, um, I'll say, earlier stage companies even thinking about FP&A and some of what's needed there? I think initially, you know, it, it's it's really the the way that organizations start off with FP&A is really trying to understand the business and what's driving the financial performance, right? So it's more the narrative behind the numbers. Typically, accounting is you know is focused on recording the numbers, kind of making sure that they are accurate. There are enough controls and processes to make sure they are accurate. However, the the, the narratives and the explanation is more within the FP&A organization. So they are looking at numbers, trying to understand what are the business behaviors, the patterns that are driving the financial performance, and ultimately trying to predict now uh, w- what would that look like going forward and how do they adjust the strategies to, to getting to the goals that they want to achieve. So it typically starts off with more the record keeping, but then you start to focus more on the business insights. So I'm almost laughing because you said that it's predicting what the future will look like effectively. And if we just think of where we've been the past two years, it could not have been a more challenging time to do that. So maybe let's jump straight into that. I'm sure it's hard even prior to the pandemic, but how, you know, now, how do companies, you know, again, any size, really think about, quote, predicting the future? I think it's kind of getting some of the basis, uh, basics and the fundamentals right, right? So you, to your point, Heather, even prior to the pandemic, we've been talking to clients around, you know, how do they better forecast and how do they get a better insight into the business? And typically, we've been talking about five key themes. Uh, the first theme is more around the process. So typically, organizations follow a very waterfall type of an approach towards their planning process. They go through the strategic planning process that then goes into their annual planning process and then goes into the quarterly forecast. But with the pandemic and COVID, finance organizations need to be agile. They need to manage different types of scenarios, depending on whether it's a V-shaped recovery or a U-shaped recovery or a W-shaped recovery. Mm-hmm. They have to be agile in figuring out you know, how, how do they react to some of those changing market conditions? Uh, the second piece, I would say, is, is more around functional silos. Typically, you know, finance may work in this within their, its realm, looking at numbers, trying to figure out how, how you know, they would reach the goals, the budget set. But they don't really work across the aisle with sales, with supply chain, with, with other parts of the organization, which also impacts business performance. So how do you really break down those silos and work together to come up with a game plan that really addresses the market conditions, but also gets you the financial goals that you're looking for? Uh, the third aspect is definitely technology. As in, you know, typically Excel has been uh, FP&A's best friend and, and, and you're using spreadsheet-based tools. It's, it's difficult to get, you know, to get a loose control of, but you know we've seen more and more organizations adopt enterprise performance management tools, look at more data and analytics, right, to kind of uh, get that insight that they're looking for. So uh, you know it's 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 a big it's a big paradigm shift for the FPA organization to to get to lose and get uh, you know to give up Excel. Uh, the fourth paradigm shift, uh, especially during COVID, has been moving the focus from PNL. Also looking at balance sheet and cash flow. You know, typically, FPN organizations don't look at balance sheet and cash flows that much. But you know, pandemic has taught that you need to look at those components of your financials as well, so that you have the operational resilience to face the pandemic. Um, and finally, the fifth theme is around the people, right? So it's like, how how do you f- go beyond just trying to explain the numbers more? 
retroactive, uh, but also looking forward, right? Looking to understand how the market is moving, what are the different business drivers that is impacting financial performance, and then how do you even leverage better technology like machine learning and, and AI to try to predict those drivers going forward? So then, Satyan, that's great areas to focus on, and I definitely have questions about each of them. So we'll just go in order. I'll try not to get too sidetracked. But so starting with the first one about sort of this idea of the waterfall planning process, and yeah. it's interesting on past episodes when we've talked sort of pandemic response, we've talked about the fact that you have to be, to your point, really agile, mm-hmm. not just wait and kind of follow this Well. 10 days later, I do this and 30 days and, you know, whatever the case is. So how do you think about sort of process now? I, I think, you know, typically, you know, forecast uh, is, you know, is done once a month, right? At the beginning of the month or once a quarter. Mm-hmm. I think we've seen organizations go towards more continuous forecasting. There are conversations happening even prior to the close around, you know, how, how are, how are we uh, closing the, the books? Like how, how is, how is revenue progressing? What are some of the supply chain issues that we are finding, we, that we are finding or encountering? How does, how is that impacting our, our hardware and services uh, revenue, right? So those kind of discussions are happening much earlier in the forecast cycle. So it's kind of more continuous and organic throughout the month. The other pieces around, you know, the, uh, the finance organization is now handling multiple scenarios, Earlier, it was just one scenario or the ability to model what if based on certain business drivers. Now they are doing more scenario management versus just scenario modeling. They're looking at multiple different scenarios and you know, either changing supply chain conditions or inflation. They're updating those scenarios and providing more insight to the business on a real-time basis. So you know, that's, that's somehow the, some of the evolution that we've seen going from more traditional waterfall, you know, monthly, quarterly cycles to going towards more continuous planning and forecasting. So we're going to get to the ability to do this. I think when we get to tools, but as soon as you start seeing various scenarios, what if, and you gave a few examples of moving parts right now, it's almost like this endless number of things that could happen. And so how do you see companies thinking about, okay, well, I have to think of enough scenarios, but not so many that you sort of have that like paralysis. So how do you think through that? Yeah, I think it is. It, to your point, is kind of the benefit and and the effort that's that that is involved in keeping those those up to date. But typically, you you know, even you know, any organization has a best case scenario, a mid case scenario, and a, and a you know, and worst case scenario, right? So at least you have three different scenarios that you are trying to manage and plan with. At the height of the pandemic, we saw organizations maybe managing a few more, right, depending on the economic recovery uh, options and what levers that they have to pull. But really, I think there are two areas is, you know, probably have two to three different scenarios that, you know, you are playing with. And then also what drivers or what levers you frankly can control, right? Certain Certain levers are out of the organization's control, so they don't look at that as much, but the levers that they, they can influence internally, they do create those different scenarios based on that. All right. So we'll come back to that, but let's keep going. It's interesting. Your second point was about operating in silos. And we recently did an episode where we were talking about the close mm-hmm. and the pop- podcast producer who I, I know you've worked with made an analogy to sort of like an orchestra. So, you know, orchestra of all the instruments, all the parts you all have to work together. Yeah, yeah. Clearly important with the close, but I think even more important when it comes to planning. So how do you, again, how what do you focus on when it comes to sort of breaking down those silos and you know what's best practice there? I, I think it comes to a couple of things. One is 
how interlocked these different functions are, right? And the different cadences that you have in place. So, sometimes it's just a matter of making sure that finance is involved or is also you know, taking interest in certain uh, meetings like demand consensus meeting. You have typically demand consensus meetings that happen on a weekly basis. We've seen certain organizations, the finance folks are not involved in those meetings. They are not at the table participating and understanding the different sales signals or the demand signals that are coming through. They're not providing more uh, insight into what that could mean from a margin and a profitability standpoint. So having a, a, a nice interlock between your sales your supply chain, your finance uh, and marketing kind of different functions can be enforced through, I would say, you know, proper cadences throughout monthly cycles. And, and then it's just a matter of communication. If there are changing uh, uh, you know, signals coming both from uh, the market or, or in terms of demand or supply, how do you collaborate and, and really break across and, and go to the other side and make sure that, that you're communicating that effectively so so that, that you're then you're reacting to those different drivers, right? So it's, it's, a, it's a matter of you know, cadences and then potentially making sure you understand the cross-functional dependency of your function and trying to communicate that out on a regular basis. So if I'm in an organization where we do operate still in silos mm -hmm. and now I'm listening and thinking, ah, I'm going to start trying to go to some of these other meetings and then often especially where that's not the culture, you're going to get like a stiff arm of, we don't need mm -hmm. you in our meeting. We mm -hmm. can't talk openly if you're in our meeting. We don't want to share this with you until we've done all our work. I mean, there's so many different reasons people may not want that integration coming from the other groups. So what? how do you see, again, you know, how would you address that if you were helping an organization try to, to work through some of those issues? I think some of that behavior is top-down driven. So, you know, as leaders, as a CFO, as as the you know CMO or the chief sales officer, you want to show or set that show it by example that collaboration across these different teams uh, when it comes to planning and forecasting processes is critical. Because you know, you you we've seen companies get impacted in terms of uh, shareholder value and stock price when they miss their forecasts, right? So making sure that you, you're communicating that top down and truly making the organization understand that this is in every, you know, in, in the interest of shareholder value, this is a critical, pretty critical element to getting it right, right? Uh, so a, a lot of that behavior is driven top down. And then from a bottoms up standpoint, right? Having a clear agenda of what different different folks uh, do the roles, the different folks play in the meeting or the cadences, what, what, who's on first base versus second base to drive certain decision-making and, and the accountability model. I think that helps out as well. So you can get, I think strategically, it's more top-down, making sure that the, 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 the leadership kind of reinforces that message. And from bottoms up, it's more about making sure you have the, the right infrastructure in, in place uh, for some of these different meetings and cadences. All right. Good advice there. So then let's move on to technology. And we talked about how there's all these, you know, sort of evolution of tools from where we were. And if, again, I think back to, well, actually both of your first two points in terms of being able to do a lot more scenarios and to bring in a lot more real-time information, you definitely need good tools. So how are you, you know, what types of tools are you seeing? We had a separate one on that, but how are you seeing this really get integrated with FP&A? Yeah. So as in, if you think about the two big trends that technology trends that have impacted FPNA, it's really the explosion of data. So kind of the big data uh, explosion and then the evolution of cloud. Uh, I, I think, you know, in terms of adoption of cloud technologies, FPNA has been even you know, setting the tone as compared to some of the other finance systems like ERPs or, 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 or other technologies. 
cloud technology has the ability to to really provide you some of those those capabilities to do what if analysis scenario modeling financial modeling is much easier collaboration between different uh, uh, stakeholders as we talked about sales supply chain finance marketing is much more easier and i would say native and organic in more of a cloud environment uh, also data as in data tools have been key for fpa to provide that business insight so if you think about dashboards and and data visualization the ability to communicate the story in a much more meaningful insightful and an actionable manner is driven off some of these data visualization tools and then there are tools uh, uh, you know uh, fpna always has to be ahead of sometimes the business and it so they they're trying to leapfrog and create data sets or you know amass data sets to drive insights some of that is structured some of this is unstructured so you know, they are relying on data workflows and data mining tools to get some of that insight right so it, it's it's really i would say the evolution of cloud data and then data mining tools that has really helped uh, fpna uh, evolve into more tech savvy and and business savvy organization well and definitely in a remote environment that we've been dealing with some of those tools are really going to make a big difference when you're not all sitting you know in one room to be able to do some of that work so we'll we'll come back and bring this all together but let's go to our last two and i've say my sort of accountant mind was very um very interested in in the next one which mm-hmm. was talking about going beyond pnl because i think that used to always be you know when i used to look up forecasts there's always this frustration it was sort of like in you know um no context it was just this pnl out there and what else is that doing from a business point of view so how how well, i guess maybe why do you think companies are starting to change their focus i think you know especially at the height of pandemic uh, having the right working capital right to manage the business and and take investment decisions almost rapidly you know where do we invest in where do we not invest in having that almost real time visibility into your your cash conversion cycles or or working capital and how that's getting impacted by you know your your ecosystem with your vendors and customers was 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 fairly critical so i think that put a renewed focus on both short term and and longer term cash levers that that they have at their disposal so we have worked with you know, several organizations at the height of pandemic to really start to make their cash flow models more driver based and 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 see how the impact of shipments or revenue has on their cash models and how do what levers are at their disposal to to making sure that they're not feeling both the short term pinch or or the, and they have the long term resilience to come out of this pandemic in a more more structured and more uh, uh at more strength and scale. All right, so last questions people and this one probably my biggest question is what type of people do you look for or do you see organizations looking for to succeed in these roles so are they coming from accounting are they coming from other parts of the business like sort of what characteristics do you think are important yeah i think the fpna i i would say the ideal fpna uh, uh you know kind of resource of today combines a few different attributes one is more he's a corporate citizen or he or she's a corporate citizen they look beyond their role within finance but truly trying to understand the different business models the evolution of of you know the 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 market and how that's impacting the the company's financial uh, uh performance so it's it's really that business mindset of how they approach this 
The second component, I would say, is they're, they're also very tech savvy. They understand the different technology components, uh, how, how data is brought together. They understand the importance of data to drive insights. And they also understand new the newer technologies like the cloud we talked about cloud technologies we talked about data visualization tools and and also the ability to basically harness that data and create more meaning, meaningful inf- insights so being very data analytical focus is definitely one of the other attributes of a, of a uh, of a strong fpna uh, resource and and there are some new age skills as well that the fpna resources are are, are getting they are getting more into data science they're getting more uh, more equipped with Python and skills like that, where they're able to do machine learning and AI as well. So there's another dimensionality where it's getting more into data science and, and leveraging these new age technologies. All right. That's actually a perfect lead in then to my next question, which would be, all right, so I bring all five of these together. Then what does leading practice look like in an organization? Yeah, I think, you know, if you think about uh, leading FPNA organizations, number one is they have clarity in terms of how they are managing the business. We've seen, you know, I would say typical FPNA organization ma- manage a bunch of KPIs, 100 plus KPIs, 150 plus PNLs. It's just not scalable. So you're having a clear focus and mindset in terms of first, how you manage the business, looking at key 10 to 15 KPIs, having clear PNLs that you're managing both on a product or or customer segment or market basis, having clear understanding of how you're measuring the, the, the business. I think that's, I would say, foundational. It's kind of step one. The second step. So, Satyan, before yeah. we go to the second step, let me ask you a question on the first step. Because, again, sort of from a change management point of view, if I'm an organization that's got like 100 plus, all these PLs, all this information, often it's easy to add. It's really hard to take away. So, how do you build consensus around really honing in? Because it makes perfect sense why you would want to. But, how do you get everyone on board with doing that? Yeah, I, I think it is. Is this how you distribute accountability? Not every person in the organization has 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 the ability to control costs or has the ability to grow revenue. It is really depends on which organization or which part of the business truly has accountability for that you know that that PNL line item. So having that clear accountability model upfront to say these are the costs that are controlled by the different departments and what their roles and levers are to managing their business. Having that taxonomy upfront is pretty critical, and that's how you typically get buy-in around the the level of the PNL as well as what different drivers each one of them controls. All right, that's helpful. So sorry, you were going to go on. So second, your second point. Yeah, the second point is around we talked about is breaking those cross-functional silos. So how do you start to work with the other parts of the organization and, and create that interlock in the planning, reporting, and, and forecasting activities? Uh, and that's through different, you know, proper cadences, a proper reporting structure, and, and that top-down kind of messaging from the top to, to drive home that point. Uh, and I would say the third step is having the right tools, the technology, uh, and, and that focus on data and insight uh, within the organization. I think that that is key, and that goes into both in terms of the digital upskilling of, of the FPN organization, as well as establishing the right data infrastructure uh, to support uh, the business insights. All right. So then let me ask you a few specific questions of things you touched on. So one of them, you mentioned that, you know, really you see FPNA today as sort of a driver of strategy and performance management, which I think ideally it always was, but often seemed like there was, you know, the strategy and performance management. And then separately, it's almost like FPNA was creating things to support that. And it's almost like you're, you're flipping that around. So 
what does that look like today, again, in a high-performing organization? Yeah, I think it, it really starts off with, you know, the, 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 the strategic objective. What are you trying to to achieve, right? As, is it is it the top line growth? Is it is it are you trying to achieve, you know, reduction in costs? What is the goals of the organization? And then really translating that into a financial plan, understanding the risks and opportunities associated with that financial plan, and then the ability to manage the different business drivers, right? So I think one of the techniques that we've typically seen is going towards more of a driver-based performance model where you know every piece of the business or you know, revenue or cost is attributed to an external or internal driver and having that ability to understand the different aspects of the change in those drivers, what does it create in terms of financial performance? So you know, FP&A is, 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 is now playing a, almost like a quarterback role to work with the different business functions to understand what's the impact of those different drivers on the financial performance. So I have a question specific to that. From an accounting perspective, when you're preparing financial statements, you have a concept of materiality. So, mm-hmm. you know, you focus in on what's most material. Do you have similar concepts for FP&A or how do you see companies thinking about, you know, obviously you can't go down to the last penny, particularly when you're talking about the future. So mm-hmm. how do you see companies contemplating sort of what's material or what they should focus on from an FP&A perspective? Yeah, I think, you know, when you think about for FP&A, it's really making sure you're achieving the goals and the business outcomes that you've set up for, right? If it's if whether you want to address a specific market share, or are you able to get certain you know growth in the business that you have you know set out for? So it's it's more I would say directional in terms of making sure you're getting to your business goals and the outcomes. Some are shorter term as making the budget for the year, but some of them are more strategic and longer term of how we're getting to the the market share and 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 the revenue growth that we typically expect as well. So it's 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 I think you you have to kind of create a little bit of that balance between shorter term and longer term. All right. And it sounds like focus on the big picture and not get too bogged down in too much detail. Yes, yes, exactly. I, I don't think a, an FP&A analyst would really appreciate uh, the, 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 the balance sheet balancing. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yes, again, why as an accountant that's, you know, as a um, financial statement accountant, that's always troubled me a little bit. So, um, OK, let me ask a few more of these questions then. One of the things you also talked about was this concept of sort of dynamic planning. So you keep, you know, you're making changes as things go along. And I, I know in the past it was always sort of more the static sort of waterfalls you talk mm. about planning. Mm-hmm. So how, you know, how do you see companies implement this? How are they changing? Yeah, I, I think the basic Lego block for going towards more dynamic planning is essentially identifying the bu- different business drivers, both external as well as internal that impact your financial performance. So for example, if it's if it's for you know for for your top line, if it's more driven by certain customer segments or it's driven by more uh, specific products and 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 product innovation that you're seeing that would impact your uh, top line, you're actually building those assumptions into your financial model. You have the ability to tweak those uh, depending on what you're change, seeing change both internally and externally. Uh, we've seen certain organizations bake in even external drivers uh, for one of the consumer markets organization that I was working with uh, you know they had uh, as put in uh, drivers like birth rates to to understand or GDP growth of a specific country to truly understand what impact spending uh, or, or customer behavior has on their financial performance so you know 
I, I think having those right set of both internal and external drivers that that identifying those upfront and then building those into your model uh, is is pretty critical to to going towards more of a dynamic versus a static. All right. So then let's keep going. So we've talked a little bit about this, but clearly data is a, you know, a huge issue here because the more scenarios you have, the more data you're getting, the more yeah. meetings you're in. I mean, it's just exponential growth. And if I go back to the, the point of you're actually trying to hone in on less things as being, you know, what you're really focused on, it, it's almost like they're going in two different directions. So how do you see companies sort of best practice from a data management point of view? Yeah, Heather, as you said, I think, you know, the, the, the amount of data that's estimated to grow by 2025 is around 175 zettabytes. Just to put that in perspective, that's about 175 billion terabytes. That's a lot of data, right? So you have a lot of data to go after to drive business insights. I think, Number one is identifying the right drivers. It all comes back to understanding what are the key components of the business that you want to focus on, having the ability to quickly get to that data and, and the, having the right data quality governance uh, and, 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 and the ability to, you know, uh, get both structured and unstructured data into some of your, your analysis, right? I think the critical component there comes down to, you know, what kind of governance you have around your data. How are you harnessing the data, cleansing the data, making sure that it's reliable. There are, you know, there's, there are specific do domains that are certified uh, and are ready to go for finance to consume. Uh, the second component is having a technical technical architecture, which is flexible, right, to, to bring in some of these structured and unstructured data sets. But at the same time, that has a proper rigor around the, 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 the cleansing of data and making sure that it's reliable. And, and it is really, uh, you know, it is ticked and tied in certain respects to your, your different financial systems. So, uh, you know, typically that role sits within the chief digital officer within the IT organization. But finance is a critical player in making sure that the right incentives, the right change management and the behaviors are in place to creating really a data first culture. And then if you're in an organization where maybe there isn't the discipline around this, at, at what can finance do to kind of push that along? Because obviously their job in the long run is going to be easier if you do have the right data structures and strategy and management. Yeah, I think have, you know the CFO plays a, a, a very critical role in in making sure that you know the 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 first of all the the the, the importance of having clean and and high, you know hygienic data to run the business is understood throughout the organization and 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 what impact it could have on financial performance right so i think that's number one in terms of making sure that you know, the cfo is involved and it's not purely an it or or it driven kind of a program uh, i think that's kind of i would say is is number one number two is having proper metrics and kpis of how you are measuring data quality data and and the kind of you know the 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 goals that you're setting for your data ecosystem having that defined up front and then you're managing and tracking that on a continuous basis makes it more objective than rather being subjective right of of how you're managing your data all right and it sounds like this is also a case of you want to make sure your information you know if there's like five places in the company that you can get revenue information that you've agreed this is sort of the source of the truth for each type of data you're using and try to migrate to only using one system instead yeah. of all these different systems. Yeah, I think you know that having that uh, single source of truth, right, is, is critical, but as you mentioned by data domains, right? So for finance, really the, the critical data domains are sales data, 
uh, it's it's HR data and then the core GL or the financial data, right? I think those are three critical data domains. So making sure that you have one single source of truth for each different type of domain and then having a data infrastructure or a data lake where do you can actually go in and consume that data in a meaningful and, and, and uh, uh, you know, user-friendly manner is pretty critical. All right. Definitely sounds like if you had that, it makes the job of someone in FPNA a lot easier. So yeah. um, one last thing to deal with when you're trying to come up with the new scenarios. So on that point, then we talked a little bit about people and people in particular, people who would be successful in FPNA, but sort of looking at the organization overall, if you think about sort of the talent that you need in the FPNA organization, what are some of the roles that you're looking for and how do you set up that organization for success? Absolutely. I think, I think you know, uh, we talked a little bit about pre-IPO and post-IPO companies. If you think about the evolution of an FPNA organization, we typically see three steps of evolution. The first step is typically hierarchical. You have of, of, of an FPNA business partner who's working closely with the business, trying to provide business insight, managing budgets, who, who is supported by a few you know, business analysts or finance analysts uh, running reports and, and creating the numbers and trying to get the story behind the numbers. As you, The second step of evolution that we see is more around scale. So how do you scale up for growth? Uh, and that's where we see more and more use, usage of centers of excellence uh, for FPN organization. This is where you're bringing people with similar skill sets, uh, people who are expert in running cost models or revenue models. They are they have better tech skills to to support the FPN organization. You cluster those resources and create scale, standardization, automation, and 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 drive towards better business insights. However. With, with COVID, I think folks have realized that COE structures can also be rigid. You know, they are not very agile to changing processes. So we've almost seen FPNA organizations now to move towards like a pod type structure, uh, which is very synonymous to software development, uh, f- uh, frankly, where you're, you're getting people with complementary skills to work in a very agile manner to, to solve business issues. Uh, you might, in that pod, you might have a traditional FPNA business uh, uh, business, uh, you know, business relationship person or who maintains a relationship with the uh, with the business. But at the same time, he's he's complemented and supplemented with data science skills, with data, uh, with uh, FPNA uh, uh, analysis, and and some of those data specific skills, so that they can they can provide better insights in more you know agile manner. So it's really an evolution that we've seen. Uh, in, in, in the FPNA organization, moving towards more hierarchical to COE-based model, now towards more quad-type models. All right. So then when you are first meeting with CFOs, talk to them about their FPNA organization, what are some of the questions that they have that are top of mind? We typically see two types of questions. Where do I source these, you know, unicorns from? Right? Exactly. These... <laughs> that was I was wondering. <laughs> and then they, they feel that this is a very unique skill set where they need to understand the accounting aspects. They need to understand uh, the business aspects and how do they then start to help even drive business performance through more predictive insights. It's almost like a unicorn kind of a profile that you're looking like you're looking at. And how do I source those kind of talent? I think it is. You know, it, it is it is a talent that you nurture, right? We have seen traditional accountants become great FPNA folks because they understand the accounting aspect of it and how the actuals are flowing through the system. But they also then start to uh, upskill themselves by even taking business rotational uh, 
programs. They they go to the business. They actually spend some time within the business organization, understanding how the business models are working, what are the business constraints, uh, as well as the business strengths. And then they come back to finance within more FP&A roles, where they they have the accounting mindset now coupled with the business mindset to really bring uh, th- that all of that together and create a, 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 a strong FP&A organization. Uh, the second aspect is around scale. So we talked a little bit around how do I scale up FP&A organizations to, to, to meet the growth demands uh, of, of the organization. And that's where leveraging you know, COE kind of models typically helps. All right. So I'm going to ask the next question from two different angles. First angle is going to come from an accounting perspective. So often, you know, the accountants will be providing data to FP&A, but then they're also using output from FP&A in various processes like impairment analysis, goodwill analysis, all, all different places, you know, if you're doing a business combination. So what would you say are some best practices of how they can, A, help FP&A more, but also better use some of the information they're getting? I think it's, first of all, it's just the awareness of how different stakeholders are using the information, right? I think accounting typically uh, does look at more uh, the debits and credits side of the house, right? They, versus understanding trend analysis or historical trend analysis. So the ability to even do some of that analysis within the accounting teams to understand where those different, I would say, pressure points are, right, on the financials, providing that insight up front to the FPA team, who then kind of marry that with the actual uh, internal and external factors that are causing that change in the business performance, that helps them almost coexist and work together better. At the same time, FPA needs to understand that some of their forecasting activities is not just for providing guidance to the street, but also for internal consumption around maybe you know uh, uh, tax uh, provisions, or they're also used downstream for legal entity PNLs that need to be created both from a stat standpoint as well as from a uh, from a regulatory standpoint. So just that you know basic awareness of how the different work products are impacting the different uh, uh, different stakeholders is critical. You know, it's funny. You know, we, we've seen FP&A folks not being aware that some of their commercial forecasts are actually used for legal entity uh, forecasting or, or have implications on on uh, foreign tax provision as well. So, uh, just getting those folks connected and making sure that the right assumptions are baked into those models are are, are critical. Yeah, so you actually already sort of answered my other question, which is what can FP&A do? But your last point, I do have a follow-up question on, which is the assumptions, because I do think, you know, there is this level of professional skepticism around where did you get that assumption? And I know you talked about sort of low, mid, high case, but nonetheless, how did those two kind of views reconcile if the accounting people are saying, I'm not sure these numbers really make sense. And FP&A is saying, well, no, I have these five reasons. You know, these are the numbers I should use. How do you, how do you get those two on the same page? Yeah, I I think, you know, it is kind of striking the right balance in terms of the level of detail, right? So in certain cases, you're able to explain some of those assumptions based on, you know, different types of contracts or different business models that you're going uh, towards. So it's really getting to the right level of detail. For example, you know, stat and tax require information at a country level versus, you know, fp organizations might be looking at the information more at a business unit or a segment level. So having that flexibility in your forecasting processes where you're able to use the same numbers, but at different levels for different purposes typically helps. So you're still looking at the same number, but you have the level of detail to support either 
pieces of the organization. Mm, that, that definitely makes sense. So then maybe final question for you. This is obviously a series called Finance 2025. So I know it's not that far away, but with, with how fast things are moving, I know there could be a lot of change. What do you see changing from an FP&A perspective over, let's say, the next two to three years? Yeah, I think you know if if I had a crystal ball and you know I could predict something, <laughs> <laughs> uh, if, if that's what you're asking, Heather. I, yes, I think, exactly. You know, <laughs> uh, I, I think the the definitely the the couple of things we've seen is this evolution of you know I would say the next evolution of connected planning or or integrated planning, right? Having the the the, the technology now be able to support that in a more seamless and a collaborating fashion across functions. That's using enterprise performance management tools. There's stretching the limits of where, you know, almost people need to work together to, to create these different forecasts. So that's number one. Number two is, is definitely moving from focus from more, I would say, low grade automation to higher value automation. So, you know, there's a lot of being focused within finance and even FP&A on, on, on robotics and process automation. Now it's really going into that next iteration of machine learning and, and, and AI where they're able to almost predict those drivers and feed that back into those models, right? Uh, and from a skill set, it's, it's really going beyond just the, the story behind the numbers, but also trying to go into more predictive and, 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 uh, and, and more forward-looking uh, uh, perspectives, right? So that, I think those were, would be the three elements I see rapidly evolving in the next few years. So I almost had to laugh at your last point because you talked about the fact you already needed like a unicorn. Now it's like we need like a pink unicorn or something <laughs> or a rainbow unicorn because, you know, to add the need to understand AI, machine learning on top of all the skills you already needed. Um, definitely an area if I was a young accountant or, you know, a young finance person, definitely looks like a lot of opportunity in this area. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's an exciting time. And, and uh, you know, we, we, we have now the right technology and, and, and focus to, to give you that value. So, yeah. All right. Well, Satyan, really appreciate all your insights. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, Heather. That's our show for today. Join me back here next week for a new lineup of shows. I'm so excited to announce that on Tuesday, we're launching a new podcast series each month taking a deep dive into a single topic, starting at the very beginning, step one of the revenue recognition model. So look for five series on revenue in March. And next Thursday, we're continuing our finance 2025 series with a focus on AI and machine learning. I know we've all heard the buzzwords, but this may be the first time I truly came away with a full understanding of what those mean. So you definitely don't want to miss it. And speaking of not wanting to miss things, if you missed the February 17th airing of our first quarterly ESG webcast, there's still a chance to join us for the second airing of this webcast on March 2nd. Head on over to viewpoint.pwc.com to sign up. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.